Welcome to the APTA podcast. I'm Amelia Sullivan. Physical therapist Zach Walton is an avid reader. He's continuously learning, seeking to grow and reflect, and ultimately he wants to be the best clinician and mentor he can be. In this episode, Zach aims to share his message to seek out more information, identify bias and limitations when they exist, find mentors, and reflect on experiences whenever possible. Here's our conversation with Zach. So, hey, Zach, welcome to the podcast. Really glad to have you here. Um, So first, for our listeners, if you could just go ahead and introduce yourself. Yeah, no, thank you for having me. Uh, My name is Zach Walston. I'm a physical therapist and the National Director of Quality and Research with PT Solutions Physical Therapy, and I'm our coordinator for our orthopedic residency program. Awesome. So you've authored a blog post for APTA.org about cognitive bias in practice Mm -hmm. and and providing good quality of care. Um, You also presented at National Student Conclave this year about a similar topic. So um, can you just define uh, those terms for us before we kind of jump into a conversation? So first, cognitive bias. Yeah, so cognitive bias is, it's essentially when we make an an error in in decision-making or interpretation based on a limited amount of information. And so when we think about bias, uh, the term that I often talk about in addition to that is heuristic, which is basically a mental shortcut. And a bias is really when we make an error on that shortcut. So uh, the most, uh, the easiest example oftentimes I use is the availability bias. We don't need to keep track of all the information that we get in any given moment. We usually weed things out, what we listen to, what we hear, what we home in on. Um, and that helps us make quicker decisions, but it also can lead to errors or that bias when we cut out information that we shouldn't be cutting out or we focus too intently on one bit of information, weigh it inappropriately. Uh, so that's where bias is unavoidable, but the best thing we can do is to recognize when it's there and then act accordingly. Before we kind of talk about how, you know, listeners can apply this and, and keep this in mind in their practice or in their education, um, kind of tell us a little bit of background about how you got into this area of interest. Yeah, so when now I went through our residency program, right after, I went to Emory University, graduated that program and went right into the orthopedic residency at PT Solutions. Um, and then from there, uh, after I finished the program, I had a craving to continue to learn and foster clinical growth, and I started reading a lot more. And one of the first books that I read was Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman, one that had been recommended and I'd seen pop up a lot of places. And that book really did change my entire outlook on how we approach our clinical care, how we approach learning and and talking with with our patients, because it, it just really opened my eyes to all the errors and in interpretation that we make. And that just for more reading. And so a lot of that was uh, How Not to Be Wrong, Power of Mathematical Thinking was a great book that I read. There was uh, a lot of the work by Charlie Munger about the work by, I'm looking at my giant bookcase over here, um, by um, Richard Feynman, where I just want to crave more and learn more about how we think, how we make decisions because that's just such a big part that I recognize now in my clinical care that it doesn't really matter how much knowledge you layer on. If we don't have the foundation to know what to do with that information or how to seek more information, uh, then we're always going to be limited by whatever we can remember at that given moment. 
So in both your blog post and your presentation for NSC, you outlined some of the main elements of cognitive bias in relation to providing care, decision-making, um, patient interaction, and so many more elements of you know, being part of this profession. So I guess my question is, as you're learning or treating in whatever stage you are within the profession, how do you self-identify those moments of bias um, and even maybe habits that you have related to, to bias? And then what do you do about it? Yeah, that's probably one of the toughest things because our emotion just uh, oftentimes will trump logic. And I think a big part of it is it's practice, it's recognition, it is reflection afterwards. And so in the moment, uh, it's hard to catch our bias. And a lot of times to, to catch it, it is going to take intuition. Intuition is recognition, it's experience, it's practice. And so while we build that, it is active reflection. And it's going back and, and reviewing how the last interaction with it's having other people watch. We are a lot, it's a lot easier to see someone else's bias than it is to, to see our own, right? And so that's where the value comes in from a student, a CI, a mentee, mentor in residency. My biggest emphasis as a, when I'm mentoring someone is not so much on what is the rote memorization and specific skills or hand placement. It's how do they think? How do they process? How do they reason? And then when I do coaching sessions, it's asking them a lot of questions. So they have to reason through it and almost never giving the answer. And so for clinicians, then it's fostering situations of just that, that you're constantly questioning. You're always asking, you're always reflecting. And then it's being aware of these biases and it's being aware of uh, what you should be looking out for that. And I've listed a bunch of them in that presentation, you know, Confirmation is one of the biggest ones. Availability heuristic, a theory-induced blindness, where we cling tight to a theory. Uh, something has been explained at one point, it's hard for us to adopt the new theory. I mean, that's one of the biggest reasons why it's taken so long for uh, adoption of a, the biopsychosocial model across the medical field. People cling to what they know and they're comfortable with. Our brain craves congruency. And so a lot of it is recognition, practice, and being willing to be uncomfortable uh, because it, it is, it's really uncomfortable tackling your own bias. Yeah. And you're kind of talking about when you have a team around you and, you know, feedback's coming in and, you know, you're kind of discussing all these things, but then, you know, what if there's a patient there? You don't necessarily want to have these discussions in front of a patient, um, kind of problem solving um, out loud in that way. It is. And so it does come back to a lot of having that relationship because you're going to have someone that's going to be a lot more, they're not going to be as vulnerable. They're going to try to have that perfectionism and, and just focus on the facts if they're worried that they're going to be shamed by whoever their, their mentor is, or if they're worried they're going to lose the patient, they have to impress them so much on day one. So yeah, to, to tackle these, you have to be in an environment that's conducive to accepting, you know, growth and failure and, and learning. Um, so this really is an approach that everyone has to have this mindset around reflection, this cognitive focus, uh, and not just an emphasis on, or I'm going to stay in my silo. You do you, I do me. And I'm just going to focus on the things that got letters behind my name, but instead being willing to adopt uh, the way that we teach and not treat. And now for a quick break, as an APTA strategic business partner, TrueLearn's SmartBank offers 950 NPTE-style practice questions, high-quality explanations, 
and a performance dashboard providing insight into your testing strengths and weaknesses. Visit truelearn.com forward slash APTA for exclusive discounts towards your SmartBank subscription. And now let's return to the show. Yeah, and it's really taking a step away from, um, you know, you mentioned in your presentation of, of being okay with failure and, and kind of recognizing that sometimes um, going through this process means that you're going to recognize that you failed and you should, my takeaway was you really shouldn't shy away from that. You should kind of almost like dive deeper into the why um, and, and how that happened. Um, so I don't know if you want to kind of talk about that and, and, and talk about failure itself. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in the book, What Doctors Think, the author, Jerome Groupman, cites one of his mentors, uh, um, I'm trying to remember her name now, Dr. Karen Delgado. And she said one of the hardest things about medical providers is that they learn how to treat on other humans, on other people, right? And that's one of the hardest things about our failures that, yes, failure is how we learn, but unfortunately, we do that on other people, right? And so that can cause us to have a loss aversion where we are resistant to trying new techniques if we know something, quote unquote, works, whether that's an outcome bias and it's not truly because of what we did, it might have been natural course, it could have been other factors, it doesn't really matter because we a lot of times want to play it safe because our treatments are dealing with other humans, other people. And so I think that's where it, part of, that's where the importance of mentorship is that someone can pull you out if you're really going down the wrong path. It's the importance of building a relationship with an individual so that you have that wiggle room. It's relying on solid foundational components about communication, relationship building, solid components about exercise and activity. And you can layer in new pieces that you're refining as long as you have that big foundation. So I think, yes, failure is a huge part. I reflect on when I was a student and heck, even as a resident, and I feel like I want to call all my patients and apologize for the very mediocre care they received. Uh, but that's, that's part of it. Uh, so that's where, yeah, I think failure is a big part of what we do and we have to embrace it. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we have to go seek out and say, okay, well, if I hurt a patient, big who cares, that's just how it is. Um, it, it's failure in, in the right kind of doses. And maybe failure isn't the word because there's obviously a negative connotation uh, with that word, but maybe growth. Sure, yep. So yeah, so uh, thinking about students and new grads, how would you advise them to expand their thinking beyond just the fundamental things learned uh, in school? No, it's a, it's a great question. And this is an area I really care a lot about when we see the, the difference of when you're in a, a school setting, because school by nature is all about rote memorization, right? You have to pass a board examination at the end. And there is black and white that is there's a right answer and there's a wrong answer. And when you're a student, you hate the term, it depends. It's like the, the worst statement, but that's how it is out in clinical practice. And so I think the big jump that's so hard for students is that when you go into clinical practice, you can't know everything. And if you rely so heavily on just memorization, you're always going to be behind as well. So my big recommendation always to students and neuroclinicians is that it's so important to initially build a foundation in learning and understanding how to read research, how to interpret it, because all research is certainly not create equal, understanding these fundamental behavioral psychology, economics, building a multiple, just a latticework of mental models, 
that's uh, Charlie Munger. So he talks about that you need to take mental models from physics and uh, economics and mathematics. And really what you're learning how to do is how to think, how to process information, how to learn more. Because if you just focus so much on, I gather as much information, then your treatment's going to be limited by what you know. And you also don't know how to then process and interpret that information. So if a patient doesn't respond the way you expect them to, and you look into your toolbox and go, I, I don't have anything left, well, you don't have the ability then to reason through the best approach to that patient. Uh, so I would always say learning how to read research and interpret it, learning those foundational skills, and then learning how to communicate build relationships and learning how to exercise. All these other things can be layered on. There's a time and place where I think manual can be helpful. That's not what the main focus should be. Dry needling, blood flow restriction, any letters behind your name, those can be the, the, the 2% that refines your skill. The foundation needs to be in, how do I interpret information? How do I build relationships with people? And how do I help them move? Right, and, and again, in your presentation, you talked about even you know, getting to the point where you're working with someone and, and you feel like you've done all the things, you, you've hit all of the goals that you think that they should be hitting. You know, mm -hmm. use the example, someone walks in with crutches and now they're running a 10K, but they wanna run a marathon. And so they think, still think that they've failed. Um, you know, how do you deal with that too? So it's not even just your mindset and your psychology and your thinking, but also kind of getting your patient on board with that. Yeah. And that's really from the, the start expectations and making sure that it's a patient patient centric approach and not a clinician. Cause it's very easy for all the exams that we do to see and talk about all the risk factors. Okay. I see weakness here and poor mobility here and a lack of motor control. So I really need to fix all these things. The patient's saying, they're going, I, I literally don't care about that. I, I, this is what I need to do. This is what I want to do. And then when we look at the research on injury prevention or the research on injury risk, there's nothing that supports these single individual factors. And then when we look at the issues around reference norm, just because the average individual might have, let's take shoulder flexion. If the average shoulder flexion is 180, that does not mean that that's normal. And if you don't have 180, you're dysfunctional. And I think we miss that piece a lot that we look at all these norms and say, okay, that's dysfunctional when we really can't oftentimes define that. So I need to tackle that. Or this is weak relative to what? So we need to do that. Where the patient's saying they're going, I don't want to do that. So yes, some of them might want to do more, like run the marathon, but others might just want to walk their dog. They don't care about being able to run a 5K someday. It's I want to walk my dog. And once I get there, I'm happy. And so that's, that's all we need to do. So I think a lot of times we need to be able to check the ego on all that we want to accomplish and instead say, what is it that you want to do? And I'm going to coach you. That's the other big piece. Therapists don't fix anyone. We coach the patient for them to live the life they want to live. And if anyone knows anything about coaching, uh, you really have to be able to be flexible and adapt to your athlete, uh, whether you have more than one athlete or one athlete. So another thing that you mentioned in your presentation and your blog post was uh, the difference between scientific knowledge and scientific curiosity. Can you kind of talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so that goes a little bit to what I was referring to about some of the issues with, with schooling and, and just kind of the way that it, it almost has to be from a board perspective. But scientific knowledge is really just the accumulation of information. Scientific curiosity is that innate desire to then go learn more. And so you have to have that curiosity on the forefront 
right? Uh, without a good question, a good answer has no place to go. Uh, it was Richard Feynman who said that, and he's one of the best you can read about with respect to curiosity. And curiosity is what's going to really fuel your growth as a clinician. It's what you want to know about. One of my favorite little anecdotes I like to tell individuals is we have a, a senior clinic director and faculty member in our practice, Lloyd Harris, who uh, I was his mentor when he went to residency. And he told me about one weekend, we're on a Sunday, he spent 12 hours researching synapses because he just kept going down this rabbit hole of when you click on another link and then click on another and, oh, I want to know more about that. But he just has this insatiable desire to learn. Now, I don't want to spend 12 hours on synapses, but the point being that if you have that curiosity, that's what's really going to help you grow and learn as a clinician rather than just this desire of, well, I just need to accumulate knowledge for the sake of knowledge, right? And that's a lot of times what happens with uh, the alphabet soup behind the name, or when we focus on just one thing, I'm just going to become the best at understanding this one topic. It's what do you want to continue to learn to get the best outcome for your patients? And now for a quick break. APTA's combined sections meeting is virtual this year. By attending APTA CSM, you'll receive unlimited access to hundreds of educational sessions, posters, platforms, and you can earn up to two CEUs. Join us for the nation's largest physical therapy conference. Learn more at apta.org slash CSM. Now let's return to the show. Right. And like you even kind of mentioned some uh, a philosopher or author or something who talked about how he wanted to know, he wanted to be as good at debating the one side, the opposite side of his view yep. that, that of his um, and, and I think that's a, I don't want to say scary, but like, it's almost like a little intimidating to like, like you, you kind of mentioned one of the, the terms that you mentioned and, and forgive me, I don't remember it right now, but, um, you kind of talked about, um, understanding that just because you believe this one thing and you've tried this thing and you believe it works, doesn't mean that necessarily, you know, the opposite isn't true. Um, and kind of, you need to be comfortable with that, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that was, um, that was Charlie Munger, the business partner of Warren Buffett, who said that uh, for him to hold an opinion, he needs to know the opposite side better than his opponent, uh, better than the person that he's uh, debating with. And we do that in residency. I'll have all the residents go out and say, okay, I want you to, for next week, go look up all the reasons in literature. Truly do it. Don't half-ass it. Really look into why you should never manipulate somebody and come back and present the argument. And so one of two things can happen. You either come back and say, oh yeah, well, I have my confirmation bias stopped me from looking at this and now I'm not going to do that anymore. Or you become more strongly, uh, you have a stronger base for why you should do something because you've been able to see both sides of it. And our confirmation bias usually stops us from doing that. We go, we Google something or go to PubMed and say, you know, look through and go, okay, that supports mine. I'm going to keep it. That supports me. I'm going to keep it. That refutes me. I'll look at all these problems with it. I'm going to ignore it. And we do that throughout life. So yes, being able to debate the other side and understand it. And then it was Jordan Ellenberg. He's a mathematician and a writer who said that by day, he tries to prove his theorems right. And by night, he tries to prove them wrong. And so it's the same thing in doing it for your own beliefs, not just thinking about what you're going to debate with someone else. And that's, I liken that topic also, or that saying to the clinic, when you're in the clinic and you're going to do something, this goes by Paul Sappho's strong beliefs weekly held. You need to go after what you believe with conviction is the best thing for your patient. 
know, there's a placebo effect with confidence and you, and you want to stand by your treatment. But then at night, on your drive home, reflect. What could have been different? What should I have changed? You know, going through with the research. There's always ways to improve. So you don't want to appear, uh, you don't want to be so confident that it goes on to cocky that you're unwilling to make adaptations in the clinic, but you also don't want the patient to look at you and go, are you sure you know what you're doing? So it's kind of that balance, but during the day, stand by what you do and then be willing to adapt and adjust as you reflect at night. Yeah. And, 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 you know, just being, um, flexible, adaptable. Um, Mm -hmm. I think, you know, that's probably, uh, tell me if I'm wrong, but like, that's probably a a good trait to have, uh, being in this profession and, and trying to make a career out of it. Oh yeah. I mean, look at how, things have adapted and changed. I mean, even if you look at right now at our clinical practice guideline, the, the most updated one for the lumbar spine 2012 with the Lido, that has a big emphasis on the CPRs. That's not something that should be emphasized right now. Just they're, they're continually not passing validation. And so that's, you know, an eight year time frame, and it's still our updated GOSPT version of the CPG and we're still seeing changes in that. So if we just follow that one mindset, we're maybe not doing the best thing for our patients. And so, yeah, you have to be flexible and you can't you know, plant your flag and saying, this is how I treat and this is how I'm always gonna treat. Uh, and this is, I, I think I talked about this in the presentation, this is where sunk cost fallacy hits really hard because if we do invest a lot of time, money and effort, whether it be in school or at a course to get those letters behind our name, uh, we're more resistant to abandoning that because we want to justify what we spent. I experience, I see it every year with residents. Residents come out, we tell them, oh yeah, all those things you learned, not everything, but a lot of the things, that was for boards. Now you're in the clinic, you're not gonna use that anymore. And it's, uh, hold up, I'm sorry. I have six figures in debt, I have a houseless mortgage. I'm gonna go ahead and do that to justify all that money I spent. But, you know, as Daniel Kahneman said, you gotta take the mind of an, econo- an uh, economist that we're not concerned about justifying the past with our actions. Your actions just focus on the present and future. Learn from the past, but act for the present and the future. Yeah, almost uh, foundational. Like that's mm-hmm. your foundational, and now you gotta. Now you're in it. Now you gotta expand. So, for those listeners out there, um, what are some like tangible things that can kind of get them in the rhythm of? of getting in that psychological space or cognitive space that you're kind of referring to in, in that reflective space. And I, you know, I'm even thinking like, is it meditation? Is it, you know, it, mm-hmm. that might be a little woo woo for some people, but like stuff like that, do you have any kind of tangible things that listeners can, can kind of use to kind of start edging and moving in this space? Yeah. Uh, I, I do think, like you said, it's going to be in the variable, right? Some people will, adapt to certain times better than others. I always like to reflect a lot of times when I'm in my car, there's nothing on. I don't put music on. If I do put something, it'll be like a book on tape, but otherwise I am just reflecting and thinking about the past uh, event. I do the same thing when I teach and present and what could have been better. Uh, So I think that finding a time for reflective practice is going to be one of the big ones. And however you like to do that, some people like to do it while they're doing activities. So maybe it's doing yard work, doing exercise, something of that nature. Um, 
oftentimes when you're doing mundane tasks is the best time to think. Heck, Albert Einstein got a job at the post office just because he wanted a mundane task so that he could reflect on his theorems, right? That, that is the purpose of why he did that for his thought experiments. And so finding something like that, I would say that uh, another thing is to find individuals that you trust that will give you feedback. They'll give you honest feedback. And so finding a mentor, and it doesn't have to be a contractual mentorship formal relationship and it can be a peer it could be someone that has less experience with you or just someone in the clinic saying hey how about the two of us we give each other feedback right that we try to you know work on our skills of you know not being too creepy but staring at us while we're watching and doing our evals and giving some feedback on it um, and then the last thing is just really learning about this more and there's so much information out there there's a ton of books out there there are articles galore on it. There, there's podcasts on critical thinking and reflection and bias. And so I think those are the biggest things that you can do is active reflection, getting feedback from others to, you know, that are outside of our bias, and then just learning more about this. Well, Zach, um, so last thing I'd like to ask all my uh, guests. So any tips, words of wisdom, resources, uh, last things you want to um, leave for our listeners? Yeah, I think that this is something that is foundational, regardless of the position that you're in. I know that I'm in outpatient physical therapy, and I come a lot, uh, some of these topics have been in that kind of underlying framework of of being an outpatient setting, but whether you're in acute care, heck, whether you're going to uh, step outside patient care, whether it's be from a management perspective, right, a leadership, whether you're going into documentation review or wherever you might go in a different position, this carries across any field, any profession. The ability to critically think, to understand how our behavior impacts, and to build a latticework of mental models. It's so important for us to have a, a multidisciplinary view on treatment. If we only focus our education on, and, and we only read, for example, physical therapy literature, and we only listen to physical therapy podcasts and read books about healthcare and just have that n narrow model, uh, we're going to miss a lot. We're going to miss a lot on how patients interact. And so I recommend diving into a variety of different topics. You know, if you want to learn more about, for example, and just read my third Brene Brown book and getting into more of how, you know, shame and, and how we connect with patients. And then I said, I've read books, one on chaos theory. That was a deep science book, but it taught me about how we bring new topics to light and the challenges people have with, you know, going against the grain. And so that's what I recommend. Read what you want to read, but read a wide variety of topics, find mentors, reflect constantly. That is really what's going to enhance your game and your ability to treat patients. It's not going to be just a rote memorization or narrow mindset. Uh, there can be a value in specialization, but really you have to build your foundation first because you're going to find that you're going to be prone to more bias. You're going to miss, have more gaps in your treatment if you have a really narrow focus. Well, Zach, thank you so much. And so um, last thing, can you just uh, tell listeners how they can get in contact with you if they'd like to? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm on the main social. So I'm on Twitter, uh, Zach.Walston. Uh, same thing for Instagram, LinkedIn, Zachary Walston. And my website, ZacharyWalston.com, where you can find a lot of my book reviews and blog posts. And then my podcast is the Clinical Gap Podcast, where I talk a lot about this, building scientific curiosity, the gaps between 
uh, formal education and uh, getting into the clinic. And then you can also find more about uh, me and my practice, so the mentorship program and residency at ptsolutions.com. Well, thank you so much, Zach. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. I love the conversation. To read Zach's original blog post, How Do You Know When You're Providing High-Quality Care? Visit APTA.org. APTA podcasts like this one are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. I'm Amelia Sullivan. Thanks for listening.